0: You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 181, Strengths-Based and Survivor-Informed Aftercare.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential.
0: Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, today we have a friend with us. That's right. I'll let you introduce her. I am glad to welcome to the show today Stephanie Taylor. She is the program coordinator For the Salvation Army's anti-trafficking services program in Orange County, she serves as part of the core leadership team for the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force and works with the United States Department of State International Visitors Delegation, providing trainings on best practices in Orange County, addressing human trafficking to delegates from countries around the world. Through a grant awarded by California Office of Emergency Management Services, Stephanie travels throughout the state providing trainings to law enforcement and victim advocates on identifying victims of human trafficking, along with best practices in serving victims of human trafficking after they have left their trafficking situation. She also works as an adjunct professor at Vanguard University, teaching the importance of holistic aftercare services to human trafficking victim survivors. Stephanie, we're so glad to welcome you to the show.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invite.
1: Well, you have such a broad experience base. You lived in Phnom Penh for a while as well, working with international human trafficking issues, correct?
2: Yes. That's kind of what launched me into going back to grad school and being able to get the education so I could serve the population.
1: Well, When we think about providing aftercare for human trafficking, the idea of holistic care comes up over and over again, comes up in your bio, comes up in your syllabi, because you teach at Vanguard, I see those things. Can you kind of give us a little context for what that means? It's way out there and people have different ideas about what holistic means
2: holistic from the way that we approach it as a framework is Maslow's hierarchy, the framework that we're we, we are all very familiar with and it's just addressing the needs of a person, both biopsychosocial and spiritually and that looks different for every survivor so it's just bringing value to the whole person, seeing them as more than their trafficking victimization, seeing them as a person that has goals and dreams that are, you know, mothers and daughters and, you know, partners and, you know, grandparents even to, to others and so we see that when we bring them into our program, and and that's kind of how we approach them. We know that their trauma is a piece of who they are, but it's not all of who they are.
1: So when the Salvation Army here in Orange County started years ago being our, our partner with the law enforcement to serve victims, they really took the lead, especially with international victims. Can you give us a couple of examples of the diversity of survivors that Salvation Army serves?
2: Well, we have currently, to date, we have served survivors from up to 38 countries. We worked with survivors from about 18 to 19 different dialects of language. So, you can see there's a broad range of survivors we've worked with. And each culture is different. Each approach to life is different. And so, it's really important when we do enroll a survivor into our program that cultural competency is a big piece, that's a big piece of the holistic services, and that we just get to know them for who they are, what their needs are, what their dreams are. And we also understand that in some cultures, collectivism is, is their primary piece of their culture. So, we know that that's a big piece of, of the healing process and getting them connected with a community, whether it's a community of their own from their own culture or getting them connected to a new community, depending on the level of safety. And so we see, you know, that's part of the holistic services where there are times when some programs are unable to kind of address all of the needs. We kind of see where the needs are, and we have a great collaborative team through the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force that helps us meet those needs so that we're not just providing basic Basic needs are just the you know the psychological needs, but we're also working towards self-actualization, like in the Maslow's um, hierarchy framework. If that is our goal in working with the survivor, then we're going to cover a lot of things in working with them, you know. And it's their choice on where they go in their process and what they choose to address. But you know, our biggest goal is just to walk alongside them. You know, help them access resources. Help them access what they need in the healing process, and so they become self-sufficient, and they get to a place where they don't need us anymore, which is always a good thing, and that they can thrive on their own.
1: That's great. So let's kind of drill down. One of the areas that has been emerging, we've done a lot of work on trauma-informed care, and now we're going to be moving into looking at strength-based and survivor-informed programming. Let's drill down on strength-based programming.
2: Strength-based is approaching, you know, approaching a survivor with knowing that they have everything in them to be able to, to heal from the trauma they've experienced and also to thrive you know, as an individual in, in the community and accomplish the things that they want to accomplish beyond their trauma so when you kind of approach a person like that whether they're whether they're a victim of trauma or just a person in general you start to see them differently right so kind of on a micro level when you're working with a client it's watching them it's listening to them it's seeing where their strengths are for example you know working with interns that work with our survivors there's a lot of times where we have to reframe how we how we see our survivors when i'm teaching them the strength-based approach it's saying well The reason why they do this is because actually this is a survival technique that they've been using for this many years. So while you may see it as a maladaptive behavior, you have to understand that they've been using this to survive for how long? And that's a strength.
1: So give us an an example of a maladaptive behavior and how you reframe
2: it as a strength. A big one is we'll have a little bit of triangulation sometimes with our survivors. So a survivor will ask for a resource from my case manager. And I'm, I'm well connected with our survivors, so they know they can reach out to me at any time too. And sometimes they'll manipulate the situation a little bit to kind of get what they need. And we we've already created a clear boundary for them, but they're you know they've maybe pushed along and they have come to me and say, "Well, can I you know can you do this for me? Can this happen for me?" You know, trying to trying to kind of change the circumstances. And while my my case manager will will ally because that's an important part of of showing you know that sort of teamwork. We also see that they're doing it because it's, it's a survival tactic. It's something that they've had to do for a very long time. It's a, it's a strength in that sense. So that changes our approach when we're approaching them. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So that triangulation, we might, if we were trying to bring that down into what happens maybe in our own homes is when the kids go to dad and he exactly. says no, and then they go to mom and she says yes. And you're like, what? We were supposed to be aligned yeah. on this. And so then we tell the kids no more of that. But you're reframing this for a survivor so that we're looking at this as, as strength. This is how they've learned to overcome really challenging exploitation and abuse.
2: Exactly. So- and, the, and the beauty of it for us is that we don't necessarily have to condone this behavior. We have a conversation with them, but we don't come at them like you're trying to manipulate us. You know what I mean? It's you against death. It's, you know, you've been doing this for a very long time, whether we're communicating this, we're not communicating this to them, but this is our understanding. This is how you've been surviving, and you've made it this far. So, you know, I can't imagine what you've had to do to get to this point in your life. So it's not an offense to me that this is what you're doing. This is just an opportunity for us to have a corrective experience, to establish rapport, and to create a boundary.
1: You just used a phrase that I really, really like corrective experience. So yeah. many times we look at, at bumps in the road, and we see them in a negative light, we might even consider them disciplinary, almost to the point of, you know, deducting points or something like that. So when you're talking about a corrective experience, that's another way of, of reframing things. And I think I'd like to know how I could put that into practice more often.
2: Oh, corrective experiences are the best because anything can be a corrective experience. So if a client goes and advocates for themselves and they, from what they think, fail at that process because maybe they're not being hurt or maybe they're not dealing with individuals that are, you know, strengths-based it's an opportunity to walk through that with them and to say, okay, well, what was your experience like and empower them and say, you did a fantastic job. You know, this is where, this is where you contributed to the conversation and look how far you have come. So it's like you can take almost any scenario with a survivor and kind of turn it into corrective experience. Another example is for a while we had a male psychiatrist come in and he was working with our survivors and we were a little bit apprehensive about having a male come in as a mental health professional. But we were thinking, This could also be a very corrective experience for our survivors, so let's try it out. And, of course, we asked the the women, and we said, hey, do you feel comfortable with this? And, you know, one of them said, yeah, I think I can. And it ended up being a very corrective experience for her because she had dealt with men in authority that were clearly abusing abusing their power. And she was able to be introduced to a man that she grew to feel safe with, you know, on a professional level and learn those boundaries. It's a very good example of, like, what a corrective experience can be like for one of our survivors.
1: Wow, that charts like a new expectation for life experiences on the whole.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then if you're coming from a strength-based perspective and you're looking at through that framework, you're going, oh my gosh, okay. So you're always like kind of reevaluating it. So I feel like when I'm working with these survivors, it takes a minute for your brain to kind of switch over into that. But that actually starts to affect your life. You start to see things from more of a strength-based perspective too. You're always kind of looking for the positive in it, I guess, or even a step further, just just the actual strength in it. Does that, you know, do you see the difference?
1: Yeah, that, and I could, I could use some of that in my own life. You want to follow me around a little <laughs> bit, Stephanie? I'd love to. Yeah, with you, Sandy, of course. <laughs> okay, so let's kind of talk about what that looks like when you're giving voice for a survivor and how they begin to express those strengths.
2: Yeah. So we kind of go through, I I feel like, you know, as a survivor, I firmly believe that a survivor transitions from a victim to a survivor and it looks very specific to each survivor. I can't tell you exactly what it is. It's almost like a feeling, but I was looking in domestic violence. It was kind of the same thing. Like you just, something shifts in a victim and all of a sudden they become empowered and it's all in their own timing. And so when, when you're looking at like survivor informed, you're, you're seeing them, you know, that that's part of the process. You know, at the beginning, they're not going to, they're not going to know their voice, they're not going to know what it, what it sounds like. You know, their inner voice, even sometimes their outer voice. Our job to kind of always be pulling that out of them. So it's like, okay, well, what do you think about this? Well, you know, this is your choice. Here are all your options. What do you think? I'm going to inform you. I'm going to educate you on what your options are, but I'm not making that decision because you're the expert in your own life. And that starts to eventually create an empowerment in them. They start to make their own decisions and something I've noticed over the years when a survivor gets to the place where they start to get angry. I know that they're shifting into a place of safety and healing because as we know, with grief or any sort of loss or trauma, anger is a part of that process. Unfortunately, a lot of times the anger is directed at us because we're the, we're the safest person in their life. But I, from a strength based perspective, I don't see that as a negative thing. I see it as part of the growth. Now. Like I was saying, with corrective experiences, it's an opportunity for us to teach them a corrective experience. And, like, anger is good. Anger is part of this process. However, here are some coping mechanisms with dealing with anger. Here are, You know what I mean? Here are ways that you can handle your anger. This isn't quite effective, but this does work. So we're seeing strength-based. We're seeing corrective experiences. And we're letting them experience all the, you know, all the emotions that they need to to heal from the trauma they've experienced. So you
1: create an environment where it's safe to be angry and then to figure out how to act and cope with that anger in a real-life situation.
2: Yeah. And, and sometimes that's just in the middle of us interacting. You know, sometimes it's not as clinical and perfectly set up. Sometimes you're just like, okay, I hear you, and I know you're frustrated, and I'm so sorry. And we let them lead in that process. What would you like to do from here? Do you need a minute? Would you like to maybe meet up tomorrow or do we need to talk about this now? And we let them choose. So here they are. Even in their anger, we're trying to empower them to
1: so choose. So you gave the this person three options. Do you want to talk about this now? Do you want to do this tomorrow? Do you need a minute? Those are really great ways to let them drive the conversation instead of mm-hmm. feeling Like, I'm going to reflect this back to you, and you're still really in control. And for an aftercare provider or even a volunteer, learning how to hand over the power in a situation where you feel like you've got to control it because of the mounting emotion, that is a skill that we have to practice.
2: Yeah, I agree. As long as we're in a safe place and, you know, their safety is a piece of that, they they should be able to feel and experience their trauma however they need to. And we, we need to just be the conduits that help them.
1: So define a safe place or safe space for us.
2: I mean, if we're seeing, you know, if we're seeing the, the survivor escalate, you know, to a place where it's, it could potentially get unsafe, you know, they could get violent, then we, we, have our, we have our tactics, we have our grounding techniques, we have our de-escalation techniques, and a lot of that includes validation. When somebody's escalating, the best way to de-escalate them is to validate their feelings, because that's really where the escalation comes from. They're not feeling heard, they're not feeling seen, so, we you know, we use those tactics, but again, that's a strength-based approach. And so, and then at that point, we do need, because we are the person in the room that's not feeling the emotions, we may need to make the call, you know, and say, you know, what, let's just give some time. Let's, you know, let's, let's take 10 minutes or maybe we can meet tomorrow. But there needs to be an agreement on the survivor's end that says, okay, they need to be a part of that decision-making process. We don't, we don't make that decision for them. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So the strength-based approach then goes back and uses tools from trauma-informed care and just to remind us, just take us through like a really quick grounding exercise.
2: Okay, I'll give an example, I'll give you a little story. So I had a client that was in the middle of her immigration process and Homeland Security investigations wanted to be involved because we have to report to law enforcement a case and see if they would like to take it. So they decided to come out and meet with her. So she was very hypervigilant in her her trauma. She would dissociate very quickly. And so they were a little bit nervous that <laughs> like, you know, we have this looming interview where we're going to have to dive right into her trafficking experience. So I know that when she started to dis- disassociate, I could maybe touch her back or touch her arm and tell her, you know, remind me, like, where, where are your feet? Can you feel the ground beneath you? You know, what do you smell? We, we just bring them back to the present. So we, I did that with her quite a few times and it, and it worked. We have these grounding kits. That we use and sometimes we'll, we'll use them in court with our survivors or in interviews like with homeland security investigations, where it has one of those stress balls so they could kind of feel something that keeps them present and there's a few other items So that's kind of how we how we use grounding to kind of bring them back and pull them out of their their disassociation
1: oh i love the idea of having a grounding kit with you that's that's outstanding
2: so really helpful you you talked
1: about her experience, and she has to tell this story. It's part of the whole process, part of her case. But in a strength-based approach, recognizing that a victim is more than their trafficking story, what's the role in how you're helping them move to the next level with regard to their story?
2: So in our program specifically, we work, we work very heavily in the goal setting. So we do quarterly goals, with our survivors and then every month we kind of reassess those goals. And from a holistic approach we go we do everything from financial assistance. Where are you with transportation? What are your goals with housing? What are your goals with community and social support? What are your spiritual goals? So we cover biopsychosocial spiritual. And they they create the goals. They create what the goal where they are currently, what they what their goal is, the next steps and a date. And we work with them every month and kind of see where they're moving. Some goals are a little bit further in the future, so we put those off, like housing, for example. If they're in our guest house and they're waiting for the immigration, housing is still going to be about a year away. But they can work on social support. They can work on getting into maybe a group therapy session or maybe getting connected with their community again, you know, or getting connected with a church. And so that's kind of how we address the whole person.
1: That's really a long process, because for a survivor to really own being more than just their story of victimization, it means building a, a vision for the future, and seeing themselves yeah. outside of that story. And then for people around them to see them beyond beyond what their story was. And unfortunately, sometimes in the anti-trafficking world, our focus on telling the stories to raise awareness can inadvertently Mm -hmm. be an obstacle for survivors who just want to move on and be more than a survivor of human trafficking. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So as we're looking at this, I know we talked earlier a little bit about some tools. Can you make some recommendations on things we could refer to? To help us
2: as practitioners, yeah, I think becoming familiar as, as simple as Maslow's hierarchy is. I think when you're working with victims of trauma, we have to go back to the basics. So I think that's a big one to always be referring to. I think quarterly goal setting is another huge one, and just addressing the entire person from a trauma informed and a survivor perspective. We do surveys with our survivors when they graduate because we just recently had a graduation. We had sixteen survivors graduate. So wow! They'd, congratulations! they so well. Thank you. They're doing so well. They don't need us anymore. And we have them complete surveys of, what did you like about our program? What did you not like about our program? And they're always anonymous so that they can be as honest as they'd like. And we get a lot of great feedback. We also have another survey for the guest house. When a survivor leaves our human trafficking shelter, we give them a survey just to kind of get some feedback on the programming, what they felt about it. And that is constantly kind of feeding back into our program. And so we can shift things and tweak things because we see all the value in it. And we know that it's informed by someone that's experienced our program. And that's really important to us as a program. And then I think just in the field of human trafficking, this just empowers individuals even more to feel like they they have a voice when they're coming out of their trafficking situation.
1: And that sense of survivor-informed is a constant learning experience for everyone in the field. And we're seeing more and more emphasis on survivor-led And where do you see that in the Salvation Army program?
2: Currently, we have a survivor group that is actually led by survivors. We also have what we call kind of a group within our program. We call it the Filipino Support Group. We have a large Filipino population and we know that Filipinos are collective in their culture. So it's very important as a social support to be able to get them together. And they all work so hard that they don't always have the time to make that happen. So we kind of created a moment, you know, once a month they come together, they bring food, and they lead the group. They kind of talk about how immigration is going for them. They kind of just exchange notes and support each other. And that to me, a perfect example of survivor led, because they're oh, empowering wow. each other and they feel inspired when they leave. I mean, the group is growing and growing because that's where they come for that support, that's part of that holistic process and the trauma informed process
1: it's so organic and it's not something that you can easily program because you don't necessarily have the same kind of experiences so they're going to be much more successful that's great exactly so yeah. as as we kind of wind up here i've been listening and i've jotted down a few notes where i saw some risk for some transference some risk for internalizing maybe the anger or resentment from triangulation, things like that. So mm-hmm. how do you do self-care, Stephanie? Because you've been doing this a long time. Just give us yeah. your favorite way of addressing self-care.
2: Okay, something that I tell my students, when I tell my interns is when I have them all do a self-care plan, you know, and we reevaluate halfway through. And one thing I've learned over the years with self-care is a lot of times we approach self-care, on like, what we should be doing to take care of ourselves. And that's when mm. like we've completely lost the whole point of self care if we're like, I need to exercise three times a week to be able to have self care. Then you're all stressed about going to the gym, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I, <laughs> yeah. And then you're not you're not in self care at all. Now then you just created more chores or more tasks for yourself. And I usually always use exercise because that seems to be the one big one that everybody talks about. But it's looking in your life and looking at the things that you thoroughly enjoy that would really bring life to you, that give you energy. It's evaluating in your life what you already have there, the strength based approach. What do you have uh-huh. in your life that's already brings produces life in you? For me, self care is adventure. I travel as much as I can because it produces life in me. Sometimes it just means jumping on the train and going to LA for the day, you know, and shopping and you know, having good food and then coming home. That's self care for me because it feels it feels sometimes like you're in another country. So it's seeing what you already enjoy in life and just pursuing that, you know, uh-huh. even more versus creating a task of things that you should be doing and then trying to accomplish them and then just burning out. (laughs) That
1: is such a good plan. And I know from reading your syllabi that you start the very first week with students in the aftercare course looking at self-care. And so Mm -hmm. you and I need to plan a train trip where we just go eat and have fun. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and especially for teaching in our anti-human trafficking certificate program. Your experience on the ground practitioner is so valuable for our students. Thanks, Stephanie. Yeah,
2: thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'll echo my thanks as well, Sandy. You know, it's just so heartwarming to see what a wonderful community is part of not only uh, our podcast community, but also through the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University, as as Stephanie's on faculty, as we mentioned. And we want to also invite you to take the first step. If you are just listening, maybe for the first time or maybe just the first few times, uh, I hope you'll take a moment to hop online and download a copy of Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. We hit on a couple of elements today in this conversation, but a lot of detail there. It's a important starting point for five critical things that Sandy and the center have identified that you should know before you join the fight against trafficking. You can get instant access to the guide by visiting Trafficking. Org. And just a reminder that our next Insured Justice conference is coming up in early 2019, March 1st and 2nd, 2019. You can find more information at insuredjustice.com. And Sandy, we will be back in two weeks. That's right. Thanks, Dave. See you then, everyone. Take care.